This week on the Backtable Podcast. We're all kind of works in progress in the same way that you work to advance your career. I think similar work should and can be done just to, you know, make us move through the world a little softer and, and more supportive of people who are different from you. Is what we're doing, is our plan of care, is it working for everyone? And if it's not, why? And can we fix those whys? Dive deep in it, you know? To be open to structural changes that you can help the hospital make to improve healthcare for all. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Vishal Kumar. Today, I'll be your guest host for the Backtable podcast. As you know, not only am I an interventional radiologist, but I am a father, a brother, a husband, a physician, and an educator. I identify as an Asian Indian American immigrant with U.S. citizenship status. I also identify as a cisgender heterosexual male. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I would like to thank Aaron Fritz and the rest of the Backtable podcast team for allowing us to use this platform to center the conversation around health equity. Last time, we spoke with physician, chief health equity officer, and director of the Office of Health Equity, Dr. Ayana Bennett. Dr. Bennett helped us understand that the origins of health inequities are rooted in racism. Using Dr. Kamara P. Jones's theoretical framework for racism, we explored how racism operates as a system. Dr. Bennett also implored us to embrace that racism is something we can all deal with. As it affects all of us, we are all in this together. If our goal is to reduce, mitigate, and prevent healthcare disparities, then we as a profession and society must begin to openly talk about the ways in which racism, including structural, interpersonal, and internalized is affecting black and brown lives. If we don't name it, we can't treat it. But talking about racism can be hard. It can be tense, it can be awkward, but sometimes those uncomfortable conversations are necessary to produce positive change. Today, I'm honored to bring you two guests to the Backtable podcast. First, we are joined by Tani Newsom. Tani is originally from Vacaville, California. Tani is an American musician, comedian, actress, and co-host of the podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? My wife is an avid listener, and we have seen a number of your SF Sketchfest live recordings. We were super disappointed when the Omicron surge ended up postponing this year's show. Tani, thank you so much for joining us in conversation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we were bummed to not be there. We love those SF shows. We are also joined by Elaine Martin. Elaine has been serving the patients and community of San Francisco for over three decades. I remember working and learning from Elaine when I was just a young radiology resident going through my rotation at San Francisco General Hospital almost a decade ago. Elaine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Tani, before we dive into today's topic, is there anything you would like our listeners to know about you? Oh, that I'm not an expert. That's very important to me. I'm very proud of that fact. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, yes, I host a podcast. I co-host a podcast that talks about racism. It largely attempts to be a comedy podcast. Uh, it's meant to be kind of cathartic for people of color to sort of point at and go, ah, yes, this happened to me too. Or, you know, there's a byproduct where it's also maybe educational for 
white folks, which is fine as well. But, you know, I didn't go to school for cultural whatever studies. I don't even know what that degree would be called. I went to I always say I went to clown college. I went to acting school. So, you know, I'm just I'm just another being on this journey with everybody. Well, we appreciate you being on this journey with us. Oh, thank you. As co-host of the Yo! Is This Racist podcast, which you do alongside Andrew T., you have likely addressed hundreds, if not thousands, of questions from readers and listeners about whether certain phenomena or incidents are examples of racism. Recently, a leading journal, in fact, the Journal of American Medical Association, tweeted out that no physician is racist, so how can there be structural racism in healthcare? Tani Newsom, as a non-expert, is that tweet racist? I think that tweet just sat, look, I didn't read the article, so already a cardinal sin, but just the headline, it doesn't strike me so much as racist as it does just very stupid. There's no way you can say no physician is racist in the same way that you can't say no actor is racist or no plumber is racist. Your job doesn't change the fact that you're a human being who has internalized biases. It's what you do or don't do to actively, you know, work to correct those biases or or not. And yeah, I, I just think it's wild to say something so definitively like, well, no doctor's racist, so how can medicine be racist? It's like, well, maybe because some of them are because they're just people. That's my first guess. Well, I think a lot of people in medicine think medicine is completely objective and removed from any sort of bias. And a lot of people take personal offense when they hear that their profession could be rooted in bias or racism or even anti-blackness or that they themselves making, may be making decisions or choices based on a bias that they aren't even aware of. Right, which is wild. I, I hear that a lot from folks in tech. They say, well, you know, algorithms can't be racist. Computers can't be racist. They're computers. We've removed the human element. So I wonder if it's the same for medicine. Human beings had to program the computers. Human beings had to, I don't know, write the medical journals. So it's the same reason why certain hand-washing sensors don't recognize dark skin because the skin color of the developers who made this, you know, the algorithm to teach the faucet to work didn't account for the fact that people have darker pigmentation. So, yeah, until we, I don't know, until the computers are creating computers that create computers of themselves with no way to trace back to the very common fallacies of just being human, the common kind of, you know, pitfalls that everyone has, everything can be racist. Congratulations. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that you weren't by any means an expert in this. And I think it should be stated that I, as a physician, do not claim expertise in racism or, as you said, you know, the history of the studies, I think. But as somebody once said, you don't need a medical degree or a law degree to talk about racism. And one thing I think I'm noticing in medical education and within our spaces of research and clinical care is that a lot of the way we talk about race and racism is actually affecting, I think, how we are perceiving our patients, how our patients are hearing that we perceive them. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts on are how language can be so critical to the biases that we hold. For me, I think language demonstrates a level of comfort or lack thereof with the topic, how you talk about something. You know, how people talk about racism tells me a lot about how they move through the world. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you have trouble saying the word racist or bigot or prejudice, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are one. It just means that you haven't 
practiced at having these conversations, whether in your social circles, in your workplace. Not displaying a level of comfort with this stuff tells me that maybe you're not prepared to engage with me, someone who spends roughly at minimum two hours a week on a podcast talking about it, but probably countless hours more than that just in my day-to-day life uh, working in Hollywood. I get plenty of opportunity. So I can't really speak to how it plays out in medicine, but I bet in a lot of ways it's very similar to how it plays out in an executive's office, you know, on the Sony lot or something when I go to work, when I go work at some studio and have to have a conversation about how something might be perceived, which also is not my job as an actor. I'm just the type of person who's going to bring something up if there's a problem. And, you know, and from those types of executives, when I sense a uh, just a discomfort, it tells me that they're not practiced at dealing with these things, which maybe means they shouldn't be the ones in charge of green lighting certain things because they don't know sort of the power that they hold. That was sort of a circular way to say, I wish everyone was a little more comfortable talking about this stuff because then we'd get past a lot of really kind of no-brainer issues. So how do we begin to get comfortable talking about race and racism? Well, I think you're doing a good job here. And I think that uh, for the listener, if you are someone who is comfortable, don't shrink yourself when you want to have these conversations for fear that it might be impolite or too inflammatory. There's a way to talk about everything. I'm not suggesting that you need to scream and yell at your workplace. And as people of color, most of us know that that's not a, an available option to us most 90 percent of the time. You know, we, we've developed a, a very measured way of talking about these things as a, as a survival tactic. So, yeah, I, I would say just if you are comfortable with it or, or, you know, get more comfortable with it, listen to podcasts. There's plenty of books out there. And uh, just have these conversations, frankly, with with your loved ones and in, in your work settings and just get everybody a little more used to it. Well, speaking of work settings, Elaine Martin has been a role model, a teacher, a colleague, a friend of mine for the last 10 to almost 15 years now. Elaine, thank you for joining us on this absolutely beautiful day in San Francisco. I apologize for keeping you indoors. But would you care to share some personal stories or incidents of when you thought we, even in the glorious community of San Francisco, struggled to talk about race, especially when it came to patient care? Sure. But first of all, I'm going to introduce myself. I am a cisgender, heterosexual, Black woman of African-American heritage. I am a descendant of enslaved West Africans. I'm a mother of three adult children. I'm a widow. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. And I'm also a nurse. And as far as language that we use, I thought about that and I came up with a couple of examples. But what stands out to me most as something that would make me feel or that I've seen, you know, when you're reading a room with the patient where a patient feels unheard or not seen is when we don't speak their language. When a patient comes in and we can't communicate with them appropriately, they can't communicate their concerns to us. And the fact that we are trying to provide care, and that is not a priority, has shown me that we are, we are not valuing who the patient is as an individual. So it's, it's not using the language of not getting an interpreter 
when we're assessing pain or when a patient has a complaint of pain, sometimes the way we respond is definitely dismissive. You know, there's a lot of variety of reasons in that, but just not listening to the patient and trying to understand or even we all know that pain is definitely different, subjective for everyone. And sometimes people of color get kind of seen as maybe drug-seeking behavior or, you know, we're not seeing them as an individual and are meeting their need. And then another way is, for example, in our discharge or pre-procedure, if we're not really understanding where the patient is at in the world, are they marginally housed? Are they unhoused? Do they have access to water? Do they understand our pre-procedure instructions? And when they show up, sometimes, me included, can blame them without really understanding or asking the patient why. For example, sending a patient home with instructions to keep their dressing clean, only to have them return with an infection because they didn't have water or the support or supplies needed. So that's just a few. Well, Elaine, I thank you for joining us. I thank you for sharing your identity and and your vulnerability with us. I heard you speak of pain. I heard you speak of blame, especially the language of blaming the patient or victim blaming, if you will. I know you and I have spoken about meeting the language barrier when it comes to patient care and creating teams of concordance where we try to match patients in terms of their care provider team with racial concordance, gender concordance, and language concordance whenever possible to make sure the patients feel seen and heard here at San Francisco General Hospital. When you discuss pain, it brought to mind a a recent New York Times article that you and I had discussed written by Rachel Ross. The article was entitled, Taking the Shame Part Out of Female Anatomy. And the article talked about the pudendal nerve, which is a nerve that provides sensation to the vagina and the vulva or other outer female genitalia. And there's also a pudendal canal, there's a pudendal artery. And there are patients who have what is diagnosed as pudendal neuralgia, which is a chronic pain condition in which the pudendal nerve can become injured, irritated, or compressed. And it can actually occur in men and women It is more common in athletes who cycle or ride horses, as well as women who have undergone pelvic surgery or given birth. And many of these sufferers, including men, who make up one-third of this expert's pudendal neuralgia clinic, are often reluctant to seek help or don't know where to turn. And you talked, Elaine, about how we often blame the patients. We don't hear their pain, but in fact, we may make patients feel, by the language we use, shamed or shameful of the fact that they have pain. And shame is one factor that contributes to women, transgender men, and non-binary individuals with vulvas receiving worse or delayed care. And in the article, she talks about the Latin verb of pudere, from where pudendal is derived, means to be ashamed. And the Latin term for the vulva was pudendum, and the translation of that was the part to be ashamed of. And there was no equivalent word for male genitalia. And it was just another humbling reminder of how much the language we use can not only blame our patients subconsciously or implicitly, 
but also make them feel ashamed of the very help they are looking to find. Elaine, I don't know if you had any comments regarding that article that I may have missed. You know, what it made me think of is historically, medicine has been built on the exploitation of women, black and brown people of color. And so this wasn't a surprise to me, you know, but I do think that I appreciate, I hadn't heard the history behind the word, that it needs to be exposed so that when we come across articles and doctors, as uh, Tani mentioned, that, you know, declare that racism, it, it doesn't exist. Well, you know, sexism in medicine doesn't exist. Well, the very foundation of it, you know, was built in exploiting. And if we can't even talk about it, the history, then, you know, our, our scholars say we're doomed to repeat it. And so we see it now with all of the inequity in healthcare. You know, the thing speaks for itself. So, I mean, there's so much work to be done, but what gives me hope is the fact that we're taking a risk in having these difficult conversations and making people uncomfortable. And I think that we need to become a culture where that's okay, not to make people feel bad. And if we really want to be a part of our mission statement and advocate for patients and care, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. Tani, as a human not involved in the medical industry directly, hearing a nurse and a physician talk about how the system that they are a part of is in fact rooted in language and systems of oppression. I know you don't represent all Black identity or Black female identity, but how does that make you feel hearing that from healthcare providers? It makes me hopeful. I wish you were on the medical teams of some of my family members. <laughs> we could use you both. <laughs> and you feel, feel completely comfortable to say yes or no, but would you be willing to share some of your personal experiences with the healthcare industry? Yeah, so... I've been very lucky to be traditionally healthy my whole life, and so I haven't needed as much medical care as a lot of folks I know and people in my family. But in watching the type of care that my Black family members, and specifically my darker-skinned Black family members, receive, and the types of conversations that are had around them, and I say around them because I notice a tendency for a lot of doctors and nurses to not speak directly to the patient, but often to either speak to me or to speak to another family member. And it, it just makes me, it makes me question, you know, I guess I understand in a loose sort of way that as medical professionals, you all must, you have some rules, I'm sure, about maintaining a professional distance. Like, I don't know what they are, but I, I understand that you can't completely become attached to every patient. And so I, I'm sure that that creates a, a social dynamic. I don't even know if that's the right word, but a dynamic in the physician and patient relationship or the nurse to patient relationship that I don't understand because I don't have that sort of thing in, in my career or in my life. But what I want to say sometimes is now, hello, Dr. So-and-so. Thank you so much for coming to talk to my dad. Are you speaking to him like he's very stupid because you think he's very stupid? Or is this just your kind of 
self-preservation way of just kind of talking to everyone like they need things, you know, spelled out in a certain way. And you're kind of not getting into the weeds too much about what type of a, a thinker or person my dad is. And are you doing this to your white patients? And sometimes I just want to, like, ask the question, like, hey, are you talking to my family member this way for some specific reason? Can you tell me why you think that you're making a lot of comments about things we can't and can and cannot afford? I'll hear that a lot, like people assuming a, an economic level that may or may not be true. And it doesn't make me go, oh, my gosh, this person's a racist. It just makes me want to know why. But I often don't feel that it's permissible or acceptable or polite to ask those questions. It feels like I'm going to put this person whose help I need on the defensive. But sometimes I just want to grab them by the shoulders and say, what is happening in your brain right now? Because you're being real weird and I just need you to be a doctor. Yeah, I can totally relate to that, Tani. I have a medical family for that very reason. And even still, when my sister says she's a doctor or me and my other sister say that we're a nurse, we still have the same experience. And so what I often do, and, you know, we go, we go, we go as a family. Whoever's ill at the time will just sit and listen. And before COVID, one or two of us would take notes and ask questions. You know, that's just, that's just how we roll. But we do it for a reason because we don't want assumptions to be made and we don't want to be talked down to. And I will often, as polite as I can, say, we know a little bit about this. Would you like to know that? Or, you know, you know, I kind of make a joke. I can save you some time and just try to get him or her out of the script and to just meet us where we're at with what we understand. And because I have been a patient like we all have, I try to remember that as a nurse, you know, when I'm giving care to ask my patient, hey, tell me what you know, and then fill in the blanks. Wow. That's so generous of you and, and demonstrates such awareness because, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of you, uh, you know, a nurse sitting there and having someone speak down to you about your profession without knowing or asking what your background is with it. And I don't know, my brain always goes to if you were a white man sitting there, there wouldn't be as much stopping you from piping up and just going, well, I'm a doctor and I get this. You know, I feel like as people of color and as women, our tendencies to just sort of like maybe ask a little permission is is higher. And I hate that that happens to you. Yeah. Like I said, we go in force and, you know, we we know that yeah, and it isn't always the experience, but more often than not. And, you know, we, we realize that they do have a script and they, you know, can't really individualize all the conversations for a variety of reasons, but it's helpful to the patient. You know, we're all different. We all have different needs and it's just very helpful to just kind of humanize the, the interaction as much as possible. Tani, as someone who has likely reviewed and covered hundreds and again, maybe thousands of questions and submissions from your listeners, are there any recurring lessons or themes that you've observed over your years on the podcast? Uh -huh. Yeah, there are a lot of recurring themes. Every Halloween, we get the blackface question. What do I do if my roommate from college wants to go as Sammy Sosa and he puts brown makeup on his face? Every year we get things like that. We get a lot of what I, I like to kind of call my one of my favorite genres of question are called like the overthinking whites, like just well-meaning white folk who just 
think way too hard about shit. One of my favorites was a white guy who called in and said, the Taco Bell by my house will only give me mild sauce. Are they being racist against me because I'm white? And it it really made me chuckle. Uh, but yeah, in terms of recurring, like uh, more serious themes, some common advice that we give if we are at all qualified to give advice is that if something feels off or if you aren't sure about something, it can be best avoided. Like it's best avoided. That happens a lot with language, with people saying, oh, this term is not exactly a slur, but it's something that we use because of you know, it's some specific, some trade-specific terminology or jargon, but it has roots in this and I feel weird about it. Should I use it? Am I being a racist? And a lot of times, you know, our response is, you using this word does not determine your entire being. How you move through the world is a complex tapestry of choices that you make every single moment. However, if you feel weird about the word, just find a different one. It's often like a better safe than sorry when you feel conflicted about things. So another common theme would definitely be people being hesitant to remove folks from their lives, folks who have demonstrated an unwillingness to learn, um, whether it's a family member. We get a lot of interracial couples that call in and we'll talk about one or the other's in-laws saying, you know, inappropriate things or asking racist questions. And a lot of times we just want to say, you know, you don't have to have relationships with these people if they've consistently demonstrated an unwillingness to learn or to, you know, frankly, be taught, which is not even <laughs> your job oftentimes. But yeah, I think I wish everyone had a little bit more power to walk away from situations and people that are hurtful. And I wish that white gentleman could get his hot sauce that he wants at Taco Bell. I wish that for him. It is delicious. <laughs> it is. Well, I heard a lot from what you spoke, including hope and power. I think there was a lot of great advice. You spoke about well-meaning white folks and I think well-meaning people who just, you know, may realize that they are in fact complicit in a system that maybe they didn't realize was rooted in bias. And the question they should be asking themselves isn't whether or not something is racist, but how is it not racist? Because... A lot of our listeners are probably aspiring students, trainees, beginning their careers. Uh, do you have any advice for them as they begin their journeys into the medical profession? Yeah, I think just the type of uh, examining that you just described sounds perfect. Like if we all took a little bit of time out of most of the things we do during the day to examine and possibly dismantle ways in which it might be harmful or dismissive to a marginalized group of any sort, you know, just sort of examining our words and language. And I have to examine a lot. There's a lot of ableism that I've uncovered in myself because I think partially because, as I mentioned before, I've always been a quote unquote healthy person. I haven't had specific struggles when it comes to my physical person. So, yeah, that brings with it a tendency to see the world in terms of, you know, how how a generally able person sees it. So there are a lot of adjustments that we can just make every day. And it doesn't mean you have to sit around depressed and thinking, you know, thinking that you're bad for <laughs> for being this way or thinking that you're somehow some bigot and it can never be changed. That It doesn't need to be uh, defeatist. We're all kind of works in progress in the same way that you work to advance your career. I think similar work should and can be done just to, you know, make us move through the world a little softer and, and more supportive of people who are different from you. Well, thank you for sharing your insight. 
Elaine is somebody who has taught me so much, and I can't even begin to think of all the students and now physicians and attendings that you have helped train and mold. Do you have any advice for the aspiring listeners on the line? Just to be aware that racism definitely exists in hospital and institutions of healthcare. I've seen in my 30-year career, more often than not in public hospitals, a little, well, you know, also in private hospitals as well, but to just be open, you know, not to personalize it uh, or try your best not to personalize it, but to be open to structural changes that you can help the hospital make to improve healthcare for all. It's not just if this is working for a small percentage or for one person. It's like, is what we're doing, is our plan of care, is it working for everyone? And if it's not, why? And can we fix those whys? And to really dive deep in it, you know, if you are thinking that, you know, there's not a racist bone in my body, in your body, and this couldn't happen on my watch, I think it can happen to all of us. As a matter of fact, I, I've seen it happen due to just structures and policies that we have and where we unintentionally don't provide a service, a much needed service because of some rule or because of a lack of understanding of a patient's culture, their gender, their race, and how, and how they identify the others. So, you know, I think you guys are in a unique position to make change and to help close the gap of these health inequities. Well, thank you, Elaine. You're absolutely correct. I think we are in a very unique, privileged, and powerful position as healthcare providers to meet human beings in their most vulnerable states. And the conversation today has been more than enlightening because it's given me a chance to reflect on the way in which language is so crucial to the human interaction in a time defined by masks and social distancing. You highlighted the importance of it. even before the words begin to leave your mouth, meeting a patient where they are, giving them an opportunity to express their needs, their wants, their pain, being open to listening to that pain, choosing the words that will frame how you see that patient, whether it's through a lens of blame or shame or drug-seeking or combative or abusive, and not realizing that frustration is rooted in deep structural inequity. So as stated in the article, the use of the term pudendal appears now to be both scientifically and biologically inappropriate. And beyond the inherent sexism of the term, when healthcare providers are obligated and trained to use this type of terminology, what message does the medical establishment convey about their view of women and women's health? One of the specialists in the article who treats patients afflicted with the chronic pain condition started calling the pudendal nerve the undercarriage nerve. And they stated that perhaps it's maybe a little bit more gentle a way of referring to a very private and sensitive area. The provider said, it makes people chuckle and removes a little bit of that shame response. Elaine, this speaks to the lesson you are always emphasizing with me, which is that we must be strong in acknowledging the truth of our history, but we can still provide solutions and spaces of dialogue. Your conversation has really 
further giving me comfort in having these uncomfortable conversations and realizing, again, if we don't name it, we can't begin to treat it. I want to thank Elaine Martin for joining today. Elaine, I know Linton is looking down on you, smiling. I want to thank Tani Newsom. You can follow Tani at T-R-O-N-D-Y Newman, Trondy Newman, and at Suboptimal Pods. And also follow her on the Yo! Is This Racist podcast. Thank you both for your time. I hope you get to uh, get out there and enjoy the beautiful weather. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Pleasure to meet you, Elaine. Same. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.